Hey again, travel bosses. I'm excited to bring you this week's sponsor, TripStreak, the smarter travel search. What I love about TripStreak is the ability to set your personal preferences to either have or avoid red-eye flights or have things like completely lie-flat seats. So the next time you need to book a flight, check out tripstreak.com slash travel like a boss. Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, the radio show all about traveling like a boss by being your own boss. Stay tuned for weekly interviews featuring guests that have built their own online businesses. If you would like to have access to our entire back catalog, visit travellikeabosspodcast.com for instant access. And here's your host, Johnny Etsy. Hey guys, it's Johnny and welcome to episode 161 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I'm here today with Stuart Patton. How are you doing? Hey, good Johnny. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. I wanted to have this episode right after tax season so people had kind of the sting of paying taxes or kind of maybe a relief of not paying that much but they're thinking about next year. Yeah, it's definitely a good time of year to evaluate where you are uh, when it comes to taxes and, you know, do some things to improve the situation if you can. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, Stuart is a tax attorney, uh, and you have a course, um, with US Tax Biz. You guys can check out the, the link at, we have a link to it at dropshiplab.com slash tax, and that'll be in the show notes. But could you give us a little background on, on who you are and kind of how you got here? Yeah. So I'm a U.S. tax attorney. I started out in life uh, working at big law firms right out of law school. And I, I culminated as a partner with Kirkland and Ellis in Chicago. And, you know, Chicago is an interesting town. I really, really loved it for three months out of the year. Um, and then another three months is kind of tolerable. If you fall in Chicago, it's kind of cool. But then for like the, you know, six months of winter, um, Chicago is kind of terrible. So I did six winters in Chicago before I'd had enough of that. And luckily my wife is from Belize and we met in law school. So, and then also before we moved down to, to Belize, we, in Chicago there, we had, uh, we have two young kids. There were four and two at that time. Um, and so, you know, trying to survive Chicago winter and raising kids without, without family all that close is a fairly difficult thing to do. Plus with, the the uh, stress and all that of uh, of of working at a big law firm, so uh, we moved down to Belize and I started my own practice as uh, focusing on helping Americans who 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 live or invest abroad. Okay, that's awesome. So, what exactly actually is a tax attorney? It, you know, we've heard the terms you know tax accountant or CPA, which is what certified public accountant. What exactly yeah. is the difference between that and a tax attorney? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, tax is one of those areas where there are lots of different professionals that do different things. But, but really, um, so I guess a tax attorney is a type of transactional attorney. You know, so like if you're going to buy or sell a business, you, you know, you, you know, you would, you would generally get an attorney involved if the business is of any size, uh, to kind of put the agreement together and go over the terms and things like that. And so, uh, so that's generally the sort of thing that a tax attorney does is, is, uh, you know, works generally like in, in the big law firm context, a tax attorney would work with other sorts of attorneys on deals. So what I used to do uh, a lot of was setting up private equity funds and real estate funds and then doing deals uh, for those sorts of funds. And, you know, that's the, you know, 
you know, everyone kind of is used to doing their taxes every year and, and all that sort of thing. But so it's easy to forget that tax is actually a body of law, you know, so, uh, so just like, you know, securities lawyers deal with securities law and, uh, uh, you know, labor lawyers deal with labor law, tax lawyers deal with tax law. So, so I design structures to help my clients pay as little tax as possible. And that's what I've been doing, uh, since day one, you know, the clients I used to work for, um, were large private equity funds and, 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 and things like that. And now I get to work for real people basically. Okay. Very cool. So I think one of the goals of this episode is I want to kind of give everyone a, a, a big picture outline of how much they're, you know, tax they're paying now and kind of what they're responsible for. And I've outlined six steps that I've, I've learned from you where we can, you know, really break down, um, and it kind of, and help save people money. And then if people want more help with it, kind of on their handheld and, you know, have a kind of deeper explanation, then they can check out your course. So first let's talk about, you know, what a normal person's taxes or just using me as an example. I was living in California and even though I had been living, you know, moved to Thailand pretty much year round, I, I think I would go back to visit, uh, but it's, but I was still a resident of California and I was still paying just normal, you know, US income tax. Do, do, do you know kind of off the top of your head what, what kind of the percentages are? Yeah. Well, if, if, if you live in California full time and you know, if you're, if you're paying California tax, then, then, uh, California plus federal, uh, especially if you're self-employed, I would just figure 40%. Like that's some kind of very rough number for how much of the money you make you're going to have to send to either the U.S. or California in, in taxes each year. Yeah. And then the, those, that percentage actually grows the more money we make, right? Yeah. So I remember my first, you know, maybe, you know, six years living in Thailand, I wasn't really making any money anyways. So it didn't matter. I think I was actually making less than 10,000 a year. So I, you know, my, my income tax was basically zero. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I started my online business and I started making a significant income. And I remember, I think it was last year, my, my bill ended up being close to 30 grand, which that's, that's when a fire was lit under my ass. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe I spent this much in tax. And there has to be, and I'm not even living in the US. I'm not using any of the services. I'm not using the roads. I'm not using, you know, any of the, like any of the features. Why am I paying all this tax? And that's when I decided to take your course and go through it and and kind of figure everything out. Yeah. Yeah. It can really be a a shocker to, to a lot of people that, you know, that if if you kind of don't structure things correctly, if you don't really think about what you're doing, then you may just end up paying a bunch of tax. But but there's no you know like you found out there's really no need to do that. You just need to invest a little bit of time to to kind of learn how the, all this stuff works. Yep, Zach. So the first thing that I did, uh, and I guess the first kind of step in all of this is just to be out of the U.S. You know, and there's something called the bonafide residence test, uh, or something easier called the physical presence test, where as long as you are out of the U.S. for 330 full days of the year, you qualify for something called foreign earned income exclusion. Correct? Yeah, exactly. So let, let's take one step back. Okay. So even, even more fundamentally, you know, how I like to think of tax in, in this area for expats is that the ideas here are arranged in sort of a pyramid, okay, with three levels. And the most basic concepts are at the bottom, and then the concepts get more refined as you move up to the top of the pyramid. Okay, so at the bottom of the pyramid, the most basic idea here is what's called citizenship-based taxation. And that is that, 
you know, the U.S. is basically the only country that does this. But as a U.S. citizen, uh, you're still subject to U.S. tax, even if you live in Thailand full time or you or you bounce around to a bunch of different countries uh, or you, you know, live on the surface of the moon or you circle the earth on the International Space Station. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a U.S. citizen, you're subject to U.S. tax. So you so living outside the U.S., uh, you know, at this level of the of the pyramid, living outside the U.S. is not some fundamentally different thing to do than than living in the U.S. But then when you move to the next level of the pyramid, there are some special rules that apply uh, whenever you live full time outside the U.S. And the, and the main one is what you what you just mentioned, the foreign earned income exclusion uh, that generally allows expats to make up to about $100,000 per year from providing personal services and pay no U.S. federal income tax uh, on that amount. And so putting the second layer here together with the with the bottom layer of the pyramid, the thing to keep in mind is that all the rules are the same unless they are different. Okay. So, uh, so, you know, things like capital gain and investment income and things like that. Well, you still have to pay U.S. tax on that amount. Uh, there, those sorts of income are not foreign earned income. So, so that's the thing to know is just that, you know, some rules change, but not everything, uh, changes. And then at the top of the pyramid, there are special legal structures to use to allow you to take a bit the best advantage of the special rules that are in the the second level of the pyramid. So yeah, I think before we jump into all that, I mean, I'm very happy we had you on because I think a lot of times people might hear, you know, the the buzz term like, oh, foreign income exclusion 330 days, okay, I'll just do that. But you kind of just reminded us why it's so important to have an actual uh tax account or a tax attorney on your side to to make sure you're doing it right because it does get a lot more complicated. Yeah, and you know, whenever you live in the US and you have a job, well, they're going to withhold uh employment taxes and US federal income tax from your paycheck. So you file a, you know, you get your W2, you file a tax return and it's all it's all super simple. I mean, you can do it with like, you know, one arm tied behind your back and you don't really need to understand everything. You just put your info into TurboTax and it just works. You know, but whenever you're an expat, you you really need to understand how this stuff works. I mean, you know, I know tax is boring to to normal people, you know, but but uh, it's just kind of uh, part of being an expat and, and and being an entrepreneur as as well is you got to spend a little bit of time understanding this stuff. And you know, as you found out, um, the time you spend figuring this stuff out, you can make a you can make a bunch of money. But you know, so you get a really good return on your on your investment. Yeah, definitely. So I think the, the one, the biggest mistake I made was even though I had kind of heard about this stuff a few years ago, it didn't really matter to me that much because I wasn't making that much money yet. But I think this is very important for people who plan on making money either next year or the year after to start getting these things in place because there's a lot of these things that, you know, aren't just overnight. I mean, um, you know, moving things like your residency, uh, changing states or setting up these kind of you know semi complicated corporate structures will take a few weeks, if not a few months. Right. So I think the, the first thing I would recommend to people, aside from just planning on being outside of the the U.S., so you know pretty much step two of what I did was to move your physical home base uh, in the U.S. to another state that doesn't have tax. So I moved from California to Texas, and I actually have a blog post on that. You can search on johnnyft.com and. While I was there, I started not only an LLC, but also a business bank account in that state. California is at the center of a, of a nasty little Venn diagram because 
they they don't recognize the foreign earned income exclusion, uh, and they will actually go after people. You know, if you leave Illinois, for example, like I did, um, you, then in your final year, you simply file a part year resident return. And I told them I moved to Belize, and and uh, and then uh, you know I haven't filed an Illinois return since because I I'm no longer a domiciliary of, of Illinois, and everything's been fine. But with, with California, it can be a little bit more complicated than that. They, they kind of try to hang on to, to people who live there. And if you move to another state, then California says, okay, bye, you know, enjoy life in Texas, you know, see you later. But if you move to another country, sometimes California kind of takes the attitude that, oh, well, you're just, you know, you're just kind of doing this whole uh, gallivanting around the world thing. And, but you're still a Californian because that's where you were in the U.S. back when you're in the U.S. So, um, so, so doing the, uh, Texas two step like you did and, you know, moving to Texas first and then, and then to Thailand, that can, that can definitely be helpful. You know, I didn't realize that California doesn't recognize that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit, it's a little bit annoying. Has that, has it always been like that? Cause this is actually the first time I've heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there are like, uh, five or six states that, that just, uh, for state tax purposes, they don't, they, you know, the foreign earned income exclusion doesn't exist. And so, you know, generally, whenever you do state tax, you start with your federal taxable income, and then you make adjustments according to the rules of that particular state. And so, California, and then, and then, you know, four or five other states make you add back in the amount that you excluded using the foreign earned income exclusion when you're figuring your your state tax. So that's why it's important uh, to you know kind of get out of California uh, correctly and 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 you know flee so that there's nothing to worry about there. Okay, so. Okay, I think that's a, that's a little bit more clear. So, as a resident of California, I can still pay less federal tax because I'll qualify for the foreign earned income exclusion, but I'll have to pay a higher state tax uh, because California will make me pay it on the full amount and not the deducted amount. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. But but the thing is, is there's no reason to do that. I mean, that you know, that's the result you get if uh, if everything has gone wrong. Basically, you know, um, you wanna you wanna you know leave California uh, whenever you whenever you uh, move outside the U.S. so that you don't have to do that. Okay, definitely. Uh, so the the states that don't charge uh, state income income tax is Texas, Alaska, Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Washington, and Wyoming. Would any of these be a bad choice? No. And really, uh, really it's, it's not all that necessary. Like the whole idea of the, of, of the Texas two-step is that y- you are, you are getting some documentation and some things going on in Texas so that if you need to show that to California to prove that you moved to Texas, then you can, uh, but you're not going to file a Texas, uh, tax return. And so, so really, um, any state works. So let's take a step back, I guess. Okay. So, so first of all, how, how the law works here is that the U S constitution imposes limits on a state's ability to impose their tax on you. Okay. And that, that limit is that a state can only impose its income tax on a domiciliary of that state. Okay. So you have to be domiciled in that state in order for the state to be able legally to, to tax you. Well, domicile means that, you know, you're domiciled in a state if you wake up there every single morning. And that one's pretty obvious, but also if you leave the state, but you're kind of doing so on a temporary basis, then you're, then you haven't moved your domicile. You're still domiciled in that state. Okay. So two easy examples of that are like, like, let's say you grow up in California, you know, so you live your whole life in California, but then you decide to go to college in New York. Well, you're just going to New York for college, you know, and, and so, 
Um, it's not like you've kind of started an independent, you know, you're not a real person yet, right? You're in college or something, you know, so you, you, you still are really a California domiciliary, even though you're waking up most mornings in New York. And so I'm not, you know, and this is assuming that like you go back to California every summer and every Christmas and, and things like that. Another example would be, um, you are in the military, you're stationed at a base in California, and then your unit gets called up and you have to go outside the U.S. to, to work. Uh, well, you know, it wasn't your idea to, to go outside the U.S. and um, and you're only doing it as part of, you know, uh, the military. And, and so so really, you're still like a Californian, you know. So whenever you move to Thailand and you have no intention to return to California, you really have you're really not a domicilia or California anymore. So California really doesn't have any power, you know, under the U.S. Constitution to impose its tax on, on you anymore. But the thing is, is California, you know, doesn't necessarily believe that, you know, they they, they want to push their power to the absolute limits. And so they'll still bother people. And so so the idea of moving to another state and, you know, getting a driver's license in that state, opening a bank account in that state, things like that. Those are really sort of belt and suspenders sort of ideas so that. You instead of saying, "Hey, California, I moved to Thailand," and and then having them potentially bother you because they still think you're a California domiciliary, you say, "Hey, California, I moved to Texas," and then you have some stuff to show them that you moved to Texas if uh if kind of push comes to shove. Okay, thanks for clearing that. Makes lots of sense. So if you guys are planning on being a nomad or you know living abroad for most of the year um, in the upcoming years, and, and you don't plan on coming back to California or whatever state you're from. Return to taxes. Make sure you, you make that move before you head off on your big trip. If you want to know how I did it, just read my blog post. I'm into detail on that. So one other thing that I did before I left uh, was I moved my. I started an LLC in Wyoming, and I unfortunately I wasn't smart enough to start a business bank account in person uh, while I was still in the U.S. So I had to do it online. And most banks won't let you do it just online only for, you know, with security reasons or whatever it is, except for Bank of America. Uh, unfortunately, Bank of America sucks and I do not recommend them. So I'm planning on going back to the US just to open another business bank account sometime soon. Um, so make sure you guys do that before you leave. And I think the, the next step was to move your, to actually have your LLC be in another state, such as such as Wyoming, um, but it, it doesn't really matter where your your U.S. Uh, LLC is, does it? Or or I guess it has to be out of California if you don't want to pay taxes. Is that correct? Right. Well, it's, yeah, it's not a good idea to have it in California. Uh, I mean, for anyone, whether you're whether you're ex California or, or not, you know, really the if if you're going to form an LLC in the U.S., the three most popular states are Wyoming, Delaware, and Nevada, and. Uh, Delaware is a little more expensive. There's like a, a $300 minimum franchise tax you have to pay. And I think Nevada is a little more complicated. Their their uh, annual report is a little more extensive than the other states. And so I use Wyoming just because there's no minimum franchise tax. And the, the Wyoming annual report is just dead easy. You just have to list your assets uh, in Wyoming, which for you know most of my clients is you know $0. Um, and so... But yeah, so I like Wyoming. Plus, I just have a registered agent there that I like using, really. So that's a, that's another reason uh, that I like Wyoming. But it's just a really easy state, business friendly. You know, no, like you said, no state tax. So, so in you know, there's no quality component to the the where the LLC is formed. So it's not like it's not like if you 
have a Delaware LLC. It's not like you have a more, you know, you, you, there's some benefit along with having that LLC that, that you get. You know, Delaware is kind of the default uh, among lawyers. And so you might read about Delaware in that context. And the reason for that is that Delaware has um, basically a really, a really long and, and really good history of settling business disputes in their court system. So in law school, we all learn about Delaware law, uh, along with the law of whatever state we go to law school in. Um, and so, so among lawyers, it's sort of the default. And so then that means that among like multinational companies and like big companies in the U S uh, no matter where they are, they'll form companies in Delaware. Uh, but, uh, but you know, with us mere mortals, you know, that just own, own businesses, there's, there's no extra juice from, you know, that long history of Delaware law or whatever. That's not worth paying 300 bucks a year for. So, uh, so Wyoming is really just the way to go. Okay, definitely makes sense. And, and I guess, you know, for our type of businesses, it'll, it'll apply. I mean, Wyoming's just fine. And I, Wyoming, I, I could vouch it's super easy. And because it's such a small state, people are very friendly still. So if you email somebody at the, um, you know, uh, in Wyoming, uh, whatever company you're, you're dealing with, they're usually very friendly and they get back to you. So I would definitely recommend them as well. And, yeah. What I like is on your, your course description page, you kind of, you kind of list some of the businesses that, uh, are good for this, you know, being location dependent. So something, you know, that yeah. you physically need to be in the U.S. for. So, you know, let's say property rental or, um, a restaurant or something. It's not going to qualify, but location dependent businesses, uh, are things like, Anything that's on a website, maybe a SaaS business, which is like a service, software as a service business, dropshipping, FBA, affiliate marketing, and you have a whole list on your course page. Uh, you guys can check it out at dropshiplab.com slash tax and scroll about halfway down and kind of shows, uh, who, who would benefit most from this. Yep. Uh, and any, any other thoughts on, you know, what type of, um, businesses have have you seen you know do well with this and and which ones you know besides the ones I mentioned you have to you really stay stay away from well okay so this sorts so we're kind of getting into the issue now of like uh legal structuring okay uh and so so I think you know Johnny kind of one of the issues that uh that you had early on was that yeah you formed an LLC but that's all you formed was was an LLC right and you, you are not doing business through a non-US corporation and so so that's an issue i see a lot with digital nomads and expats who are doing a location independent business is they they may just form an LLC and do business that way and uh if you do that you're going to pay tax there's just there's just no way around it uh, okay so first of all if you're just doing business through an LLC uh, that you wholly own, let's, let's say, for example, um, then you are self-employed for U.S. tax purposes. And so you're going to pay self-employment tax. And that's about 15%, uh, up to about $118,000. And it's 3% over that. So on your first $100,000, you know, you may be expecting to pay no tax because you're, you know, you say, okay, well, the four, you know, I qualify for the foreign earned income exclusion because I'm spending, you know, less than a month per year in the U.S. And so uh, that means I don't have to pay any tax. Well, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't quite work that way. The foreign earned income exclusion only works for U.S. federal income tax purposes. When you're self-employed, you still have to pay the self-employment tax. Well, you know, let's pause right there uh, because I think a lot of people don't realize that there's, it's, it's different. So let's say somebody's making a hundred grand. They might, you know, qualify for the foreign earned income exclusion. So instead of paying, you know, 30 grand, they might only have to pay their 
And then let's say they moved out of California or out of somewhere uh, with tax. So now they're saving that 30% plus that 8%, but they still have another 8% from self-employment tax, which adds up. You know, that's, uh, you know, eight grand right there. And if you're making, if you're trying to grow your business, and you're making more than that. You might be spending $16,000 in self-employment tax. And that's actually what got me, what made me pay so much in tax last year. Uh, and actually this year as well, because I didn't have my non-US corporation set up yet until until this year, until now, which is going to going forth in 2008, you know, 2000, first 2017 is going to kick in effect. But for my taxes last year and the year before, even though I qualified for the foreign earned income exclusion and even though I moved out of California and just by doing those two things, I did I saved a ton of money on taxes, but I still had to pay Fifteen grand for on self-employment tax, and and what you're saying now is this next part by by creating our non-U.S. company, I'm not gonna have to pay really any of that or less of it at least. Right. Yeah. So now let's be clear about one thing: um, paying self-employment tax might be a good thing. Okay. I know that sounds crazy to hear a tax lawyer say that paying tax might be a good thing, but but let's look at the situation more more holistically. So whenever you pay U.S. federal income tax or state income tax, that's money that you give to the government and then they do something with it. And theoretically, as a citizen, you know, theoretically, you benefit from it somehow, some way. Right. Uh, but like you said, you're not using the roads and stuff. So, so it's a little bit, uh, you know, difficult to think about how exactly you benefit. But with self-employment tax, it's a little bit different because theoretically, at least that money is your ticket to getting Social Security you know, down the road when you turn 65 or 62. Um, so, and then, you know, the amount you get in social security depends on the amount you pay in over the time. And, and you have to pay in for 10 years before you qualify to get any social security at all. So, so self-employment tax kind of needs to be considered in this larger context of, you know, it, you can kind of think of it as an enforced savings mechanism where you're probably getting a negative return on your investment maybe. And then, and maybe you, you get nothing back if, Social security is not around when, when you turn 65 or, or whatever. So, or if they push it back until you're 70. Yeah. And I can tell you, I, I have clients who are, uh, expats who are nearing, you know, uh, or over 65 and they moved out of the U S when they were young and social security is not around. And it's something that, you know, maybe it would be nice if they were able to get a check, um, even for a thousand bucks or whatever, uh, from the U S every, every month, but, but it's, that's not available to them. So, so if you've already worked in the U S for 10 years, well, then you qualify, you got your, you have to get 40 quarters technically. So it works. Um, and so, so then, yeah, just paying self-employment tax, uh, you know, theoretically your benefit goes up because you're paying more in, but, but it's, but if you look at, you know, if, if you're able to save that money yourself and invest it yourself, you're probably uh, going to do better. Um, but if you if you if you're young enough that you have not yet worked for ten years in the U.S., then you know it might be something to might be something to consider. Oh, that's actually really cool. I haven't thought about that. Does it have to be ten years in a row, or just ten years over your lifetime if you turn before you turn sixty-five? Yeah, just ten years over your lifetime. Okay. And is there a minimum that you would have to pay either each year or in total before you start qualifying? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's kind of a, you pay in or you don't. Um, okay. but yeah, so that makes sense. Cause I, I'm actually not too sure on how social security works. D- does everyone get the same amount when they turn 65 or is it, does it based on how much they've, they've put in? 
Yeah, it's based on how much you've put in, but, um, you know, there's a cap, you know, so I've, I've contributed the maximum for, uh, since I started working, uh, uh, well, after law school at least. And then I guess I contributed less than the maximum when I was delivering pizza and waiting tables in, in college and things like that. But, uh, but my benefit amount, you know, is not, is not all that much. So, uh, so yeah, definitely it, it, it's not like, you know, it's, it, the relationship is not like directly linear or something where, where, uh, it just kind of goes up and up as you pay more, more and more, you know, it definitely, you, you definitely can get to a point where you realize that you are, uh, you know, cannon fodder basically. And you, you know, you are supporting, uh, payouts to other people, you know, so that's kind of the whole idea of the, of the system. Okay, that makes sense. And I don't think anyone listening to this should rely on Social Security for your retirement. So, but it, it is a nice yeah. uh, side benefit uh, that I was not, not aware of. So now I, I think we can kind of get into the really kind of exciting, kind of juicy part is setting up that a non-US company. Like, how much can someone actually save? So, so let's say you know I'm let's say I made two hundred grand last year in in. Uh, in net profit for my, you know, for my business. And my, if my, well, let's say for next year, because now I'm actually set up, uh, internationally. And let's say I, I did everything correctly. How, like, what would I normally have to, have to pay if I didn't do it internationally? And how much would I be able to save if I, if I did? Okay. So remember, you're going to have to pay two different taxes, self-employment tax and then U.S. federal income tax. So self-employment tax, it's 15% on the first 100,000, uh, 118,000. And then it's, uh, about 3% over that. So let's just say 20 grand on, on 200,000. Let's just say 20 grand. Uh, that's a nice around, a nice around number. Also, it's complicated because, um, half the self-employment tax is deductible for U.S. federal income tax purposes and all that. So we're using, uh, you know, some, some round numbers here for okay. example purposes. Okay. So let's say on, on your $200,000 of net profit, you pay 20 grand of self-employment tax. And then when most people think of the foreign earned income exclusion, how they think of it is you get the first $100,000 free of U.S. federal income tax. However, there are a couple of rules that apply here that knock that $100,000 benefit way, way down in certain cases. Okay. So the first rule is called the 30% rule. Okay. So, so how the foreign earned income exclusion works is you, you get to make $100,000 without paying U.S. federal income tax. But that's only from, uh, that's only for income that you make for providing personal services. Okay. So if you have a job, like if you're in Bangkok and you're working for Apple, you know, remotely, uh, then, you know, all, everything you make is from your personal services because you have a job, you know, or if you're like an independent freelancing consultant, uh, then everything you make is from providing services as well. But, if you own a business like a drop shipping business an Amazon FBA business, uh, you know, any business that you have to put money into in addition to having to put your time into, well, then obviously, like if you think of it as an economic matter, um, the, re- you know, the amount you make from your business is not only a return on your time, but it's also a return on the money you put into it. Okay. And so, so with the 30% rule, the IRS does some very, very rough justice here or, or rough injustice uh, is probably a better way to think about it. And, and what the IRS says is, okay, if you have the sort of business where you have to put money into it, in addition to putting your time into it, then, then you can only treat up to 30% of the net income from that business as foreign earned income. Okay. So, oh, okay. so let's say, let's use a, you know, to pick, 
to, to, to pick an example of a business out of thin air has nothing to do with you. Let's say drop shipping, right? Okay. So drop shipping, you know, you have to select products and, you know, put your time into it, but you also have to buy stuff in order to sell it. So, you, so it's a business where you have to put money into it. So uh, if you make a hundred, uh, $200,000 of net profit, then, you know, if you only knew a little bit about the foreign earned income exclusion, you might say, well, I get the first hundred thousand dollars free and I got to pay tax on the other hundred thousand. Actually, no, you only get, uh, $60,000. So that's the percent rule applies here. You can only treat up to 30% of your net that profit as foreign earned income. So you're, it's only your first $60,000 uh, that is free of U.S. federal income tax because of the foreign earned income exclusion. So you have to pay tax on not $100,000, but $140,000. Oh, wow. That's complicated. Okay. So what if it's something like... So this rule... What if it's something like a, like a blog? Let's say I'm making the whole 200 grand, you know, and, and I wish I was and I, and I wasn't, but let's say somebody is making 200 grand yeah. off of a website and, you know, they they, they, they spend like $10 a year on the website for the domain and maybe five bucks a month right. or something. And the rest of it is just their time. Uh, let's yeah, so, say it's Kim, Kim Kardashian blogging about fashion or something. Yeah. So for them, uh, so generally they do get the first hundred thousand dollars free of, of us federal income tax, but there is, there's also there, you know, you keep taking this into a simple direction and I keep bringing up complications, but but there is another rule, okay? There's another rule uh, that makes makes it where the foreign earned income exclusion does not work exactly as you may expect whenever you are self-employed. And that rule is called the scale-back rule, okay? So the idea basically is that uh, if you have gross income over $100,000 and then you have deductions uh, that reduce that gross income, then you should not be able to use your deductions and the foreign earned income exclusion against the same item of income. If you do, you're kind of getting a double benefit. Okay. So like imagine, for example, you have $1 of net income. Okay. So whatever you did in your business, someone gave you a dollar for it for the whole year. Okay. And then imagine you spend that dollar on something like website hosting, something deductible for your business. And so, so you're at $0, right? Well, if you get to exclude that $1 using the foreign earned income exclusion, you're now at negative one. So you've kind of created a net operating loss out of, out of thin air. So, so basically the scale back rule says that you have to reduce the foreign earned income exclusion uh, that you can take by basically there's math involved. Okay. But basically you kind of take into account uh, the fact that you have gross income over $100,000 and deductions as well. So so, so the net effect is that it's still not a clean $100,000 off. It's going to be something less than $100,000 off to the extent that you have uh, deductions that are reducing your gross income as well. And then, okay, so let, let's let's make it simpler. Let's let's kind of put that rule off to the side. Okay, so let's say this person has $200,000 of, of gross income and no deductions for some reason. Um, and then, so, so basically the first $100,000 would be free of U.S. federal income tax because of the foreign earned income exclusion. But then on that second $100,000 of net profit, they're going to pay U.S. federal income tax exactly like they lived in the U.S., you know, because they're out of, you know, they are out of uh, the foreign earned income exclusion. They're out of anti-income to use against that income. And so, so they just have to pay tax. And also another thing here is sometimes people think, okay, well, I got to pay tax now. So that means that the tax rates start at the low part of the bracket and then you work your, you work your way up. But, but unfortunately, you know, they thought of this one. And so, uh, you actually, the brackets actually start where they would start if you did pay tax on that first hundred thousand dollars. So it starts at 28%. Okay. Wow. So, 
So that's how we can simplify this is let's, so remember earlier we said on your $200,000 of a uh, net profit, you're going to pay like 20 grand of a uh, self-employment tax. And then now let's say you pay about 30 grand of us federal income tax. Okay. So that's $50,000 uh, together uh, on your, so you're, you're, you know, so your $200,000 of net profit, uh, you get to send 50,000 of those dollars uh, over to the IRS. Okay. And that is without having a, a non-US company, correct? Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. That's just being a, being a self-employed human, wh- whether you have an LLC or not. So if you have a wholly okay. owned LLC that you're operating through, then you're just, you're still, a, you know, in, in, for, for US tax purposes, that LLC is disregarded as a separate entity from you, which means it just does not exist for tax purposes. And so that means that you're still a self-employed human for tax purposes. And so you get the result that, that we just talked about. You get to send a, you know, a, a, a very nice car, BMW three series, um, maybe a five series, I don't know, uh, to, to the IRS, uh, uh, out of the goodness of your heart, basically. Okay. Well, I don't know if it's out of the goodness of my heart, but <laughs> sending that check over. And I think that's actually what happened to me last year where, where I thought I'll, my taxes would be a lot lower because in my head, I had calculated getting the first hundred grand, uh, 108,000, I think for, for free from the IRS. And when my CPA gave me back my taxes and I saw that they, they put in the foreign earner income exclusion, but I was still responsible for you know, something like 30 grand. And I was thinking like, why is this? And I think you just explained exactly what it was. And now, you know, so one thing, so remember that 30% rule I mentioned, I have, I reviewed a bunch of uh, tax returns prepared by like these large expat tax return preparation companies. And a lot of them don't, don't apply the 30% rule. Okay. And this rule is not something I'm, I'm making up or it's not some obscure thing. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's in IRS publication 54, which is like the IRS's guide to expat tax. And it's also in the instructions to IRS form 2555, which is the form you use to claim the foreign earned income exclusion. So it says that, you know, you can do a control F for 30%, um, and, 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 and read the rule right in there. The thing is, is that like, I think a lot of tax software systems don't incorporate the rule. So there's no like checkbox. Uh, in like professional tax software um, where it says, you know, does the 30% rule apply? Check here, you know? So it's something that you have to do by hand. And so, you know, as a service provider, you don't want to have unhappy clients. And so I think, you know, either, either a lot of these, uh, these types of return preparers that work for these churn out, churn it out sort of companies, either they don't know about this rule, which is very possible, or they kind of conveniently, um, you know, don't think too deeply about it and conveniently ignore it because, um, no one likes to tell their clients that they have to pay tax. Man, that would suck. So, h- how many years does IRS have to go back and audit someone? So, the general statute of limitations is three years. Um, but in other circumstances, uh, you know, they can go back further than that. The next question that kind of comes up a lot in this area is that, like, okay, well, now, now that I know this, I have determined that my past tax returns are incorrect. What do I do now? Well, you actually don't have any affirmative obligation to go back and amend returns that you discover uh, were done incorrectly. You know, so you can just kind of hang tight and um, hang tight and hope uh, the IRS doesn't contact you. You know, but but now that you know, you know, now that you know about the thirty percent rule, I mean, if you sign that next tax return um, under penalties of perjury, you know, that, with that scary language on the on the bottom of it, and, and the thirty percent rule isn't in there, well, that's now you're kind of doing something different than. Uh, than you were doing uh, before knowing about how that rule worked. 
Okay, so so let's say someone you know had a, a crappy accountant and they they messed up on their on their taxes, and the IRS does say, hey, you know, the business is extra thirty percent, and you said, sorry, I didn't know about it. What what are the fees for that? Is it is it like interest on top of what you have owed, or do you just do you just pay what you should have paid anyways? Yeah, so there's uh, you know some some penalties and interest would would apply, and then there are some ways to get that reduced. There's there's a procedure called first time abate where you can kind of basically say you, you kind of get one free you know kind of uh, uh, from the IRS. So there and then for for innocent mistakes like that, you know, IRS is not some big mean um, you know monolithic evil empire that you know we normally think of it as. Uh, you know, I, I I've I've you know I've had lots of situations uh, where uh, you know someone's been audited and then the IRS just says just just fix it and then everything will be fine. So so it's not necessarily the the absolute end of the world if you get audited. I mean, you will have to pay the back tax, uh, but it's not like uh, you'll necessarily need to pay a ton of uh, penalties and interest uh, on top of that. Okay, so the the crazy horror stories about you know us hearing people going to jail—that's always because they they you know they get warned and they they just keep running from it, right? Yeah, the line the line is between willfulness and non-willfulness. So willfulness is someone who uh, you know knows the rules and they know they're breaking the rules and then they, they know they're doing something wrong and they're they're hiding money from the government and, and, and things like that. Uh, you know, and they're using fancy structures to obscure their ownership of assets and, and, and all kinds of, you know, goofy stuff like that. But, but, uh, if you have a purely innocent, um, you know, uh, situation, then that's, you know, you want to fix it. I mean, it's, it's not something that you want to just kind of keep on rolling with. You want to, you know, do use a better legal structure, you know, like we're about to talk about, uh, so that, so that you can, you can legally, uh, pay less tax. Uh, but, but it's not something to be overly, uh, uh concerned about. You know, this is a good transition into the next part because I think a lot of reasons why people don't like don't do this is because they are afraid that they're hiding something or it's somehow illegal. And I think that's why I was so excited when someone introduced me to you because you're an actual U.S. tax attorney. So this is kind of like your your specialty, your expertise. How legal is creating a you know offshore company and you know and you know basically uh, going through your structure? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a it's a it's a thousand percent above board and, and legal. I mean, it's a perfectly normal and legal thing to do to set up a legal structure through which you you do business. Now, um, you have to do it. You have to do it correctly, and you have to use it only in the situations where it works. I mean, there are definitely definitely are some situations where operating through a non-U.S. corporation uh, would not be a legitimate thing to do for U.S. tax purposes. But uh, but whenever you live outside the U.S. and you have a a business that you're doing, uh, then yeah, it's a perfectly normal thing. I mean, I'm like, so one example I like to think about is imagine in Paris right now, there's a gas station, right? Well, that gas station makes money by, by selling gas to, to Parisians and, and, and visitors who pull in, uh, and, and buy gas from them. So the business is entirely conducted outside the U S well, they, uh, you know, that the gas station is probably owned by a, a French, uh, corporation, so that's you know that's a perfectly fine way to structure that. There's no reason, uh, and, and the the owner of it may be a U.S. citizen. I mean, you know, there's nothing U.S. involved, so it's kind of it's perfectly okay to hold that business through a non-U.S. company. So so let's maybe get into the requirements. Uh, so for for Americans, digital nomads, and expats, uh, holding your business through a non-U.S. corporation um, isn't something that works in every single situation, and it only works. Uh, 
in specific situations. So, so generally need to be three things need to be true. So first, uh, you know, you do need to be an expat or digital nomad. Uh, you do need to live outside the U.S. more or less full time. Okay. And so there's some nuances here, but basically, you know, if you qualify for the foreigner and income exclusion, then that's going to work. Okay. But I mentioned this because every single time I talk about these issues, you know, someone contacts me and says, Hey, I still live in the U S can I, can I fire up a non U S company and do my business through that? And the answer is no, you can't. So this stuff we're talking about is only for expats and, and digital nomads. So, uh, so this does not work while you live in the U S even, you know, this just stresses why it's so good to be location independent. I mean, there's just so many benefits of not living in the U.S., but, you know, I, and you can travel as a digital nomad or just be, you know, be an expat in another country, uh, or you can, you know, just be location independent. And there are, the more and more I live this lifestyle, the more benefits I find from it. And the only reasons why people stay, it's, you know, it's, you have to kind of weigh the pros and cons. You know, everyone has a reason to stay in the U.S., but reasons like this, these tax savings like this, just stack it in people's favor to be location dependent. So, you know, I'm really glad um, that yeah, this is a a legal thing to do if you really do live out of the U.S. Yeah, and I, you know, I want to. I'm going to write a book one of these days on on this stuff, and I don't have a title yet, but I think the subtitle will be something like "Why Every Entrepreneur Should Consider Being an Expat and Every Expat Should Consider Being an Entrepreneur." Just the two things just absolutely uh, go together hand in hand. So, so like you said, if 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 you're of a mind to start a business and you're living in the U.S., well, you're going to pay a whole bunch of tax that you can save by by getting outside the U.S. But at the same time. If you're already in Chiang Mai uh, or wherever, and uh, and you're you're like a freelancer or you have a job, um, well, you know, there's probably something you're interested in that you could start a niche website about, and and then you could you could make some AdSense money and uh, do some affiliate marketing and things like that. Or you know, there are probably other maybe if you're if you're like a programmer. You know, sometimes I, 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 these are the people that I get, I get, that, uh, I get frustrated with or confused by, like people who actually know how to code stuff, but they're just doing it for a paycheck, you know? And I'm like, dude, you know, you, uh, you've got this awesome skill that, like, if you, if you read, like, uh, the entrepreneur subreddit or things like that, there's so many people that have ideas for apps, but they don't know how to code or whatever. So, uh, you know, it's a kind of this constant thing where, you know, uh, they're, uh, they're trying to look for coder, but if you already know how to, how to, how to code stuff up, you know, I'm sure you've got some idea for an app or a SaaS product or, or a SWAS product or something like that, you know, that, that, uh, that you can do. So it's just, it's just one of those things that, uh, because of the, the ability to make money without paying a bunch of tax, I mean, it's a completely awesome thing to do. Or they can team up with an entrepreneur okay, who, so- you know, if you can code, you can team up with an entrepreneur and develop it together. Uh, you know, and that's another great idea. And if someone, exactly. or, it, if someone wanted to, ju- you know, they wanted to code, they're like, I don't want to be the entrepreneur. Can they freelance and, and you know, be based out of the U.S. and and still go through this? No, no. Okay, so that's uh, perfect. Uh, so we're doing this like we planned it. I mean, this is this is good, John. Like, so this is the second requirement. Okay, so so in order to use a non-U.S. corporation structure, first requirement is you got to live outside the U.S. You got to be an expat or digital nomad. Second requirement is you have to have a business. Okay, so not a profession. And here's here's the difference. When you have a profession, you are selling your own services. You're selling your time, your attention. Maybe you're selling it to one person, like as an employee or like an independent contractor or something. Or maybe you're selling it to a bunch of different people, you know, as a as a freelancer or 
you know, as a tax attorney or whatever, I don't know. Uh, you know, and so, uh, but, but what, what people are buying is you, you know, they're buying your time, your attention, your brain, they're renting your brain. Okay. So that's a profession. Um, a business is basically anything where you're selling something that's not your own time and attention. Like it could be kitchen gadgets. It could be access to software. Uh, it could be, um, an experience, you know, like a tour, uh, to see the pyramids or whatever. Um, so it could be also other people's time and attention, you know, like if you have a, if you have, if you're doing consulting, but it's not, you know, it's not like a you for hire, but it's your team for hire. Well, that's a, that's a business. So, so, uh, so that's the second thing is if you want to use a non-US corporation to get the better tax benefits, you need to have a business, not a profession. And, and this is something that you'll see people, uh, you'll see online people just get wrong, you know, and, and a lot of those people who get this wrong, you know, believe it or not, sell non-US corporations, you know, so, um, if you're of a mind to start a non-US corporation, they say, yeah, sure, it works in, in your situation because, you know, these people are often unburdened by being tax attorneys and actually knowing stuff works. So they can say whatever they want if, if, if it, if they think it'll get you to, to buy a non-US corporation. But unfortunately, it doesn't work. And, you know, I wish, I wish it did work to run a profession through a non-US corporation because I'm a professional, uh, and I'm an expat and I pay a bunch of self-employment tax and I pay US federal income tax on, on, um, what I make above a hundred thousand dollars every year. And, uh, if I could do it through a non-US corporation and save money, I absolutely would. Okay. So um, I guess my next question would be, I guess technically someone, instead of being the program themselves, they can create a, a business where they hire, you know, uh, other uh, programmers, you know, and, and they, they become more of a, what would you, what would you call it? Like, um, like, like, I guess, I don't know the word for it, but like a business where they would, instead of them doing the work, they have other employees or other freelancers doing the work and maybe they'll oversee it. Maybe they'll double check the work. Would that count? Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like, you know, uh, you're developing a SaaS product or an app or something like that. Um, yeah, that's great. That's a, that's a, that's a business, you know, cause what, what ultimately is being sold is not, uh, your time and attention. It's, you know, it's something else. It's access to the app, it's access to the, to the SaaS product or it's a service, you know, it's a SWAS sort of thing, like a service that goes along with, um, access to the SaaS product. So yeah, that's all, that's all perfect. What if someone created a course? So, you know, it's, it's a recording of them, you know, it's of them teaching something and people are buying the course. So they're not, they're not trading their, you know, their time and money, you know, they're not trading their time anymore. They're not, it's not a service based business anymore. And you, would that be, would that count as a business because you're selling them access to this course? Yep, ab- absolutely. That's a that you're selling a product, so it's a digital product, but it's still a product, you know. So that yeah, that absolutely qualifies as a business. And you know, I sell courses, and I've got a non-U.S. corporation structure through which I sell my courses. So uh, you know, so I, I'm I'm a you know I'm, I'm taking my own medicine here. <laughs> but so the last one would be uh, someone has a you know, let's say someone has a blog or something, and they're doing affiliate, uh, they're making money through affiliate products. Would that also that also counts as a business because they're buying a product, and you know even though that person is spending their time, you know let's say, uh, you know create you know writing writing this blog or creating this niche website. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Affiliate. Yeah. A, a niche website that with, that makes money through affiliate marketing, AdSense, maybe native ad sales, uh, other stuff like that. That's perfectly. That's perfectly. Uh, you know, f- perfect for this uh, structure. So, so it's really just people that are being billed, you know, f- for for their direct service. Okay. Exactly. And so, okay. Third requirement in order to use a non-U.S. corporation structure is that you can't have employees or 
other people that are called dependent agents in the United States. Okay, so that's an absolute key is you can't have people who wake up every morning in the U.S. who work for your business. Okay, and so the reason for that is that if you if you own if you have a business that's owned by a non-U.S. corporation, but there are people that work for that non-U.S. corporation in the U.S., then the non-U.S. corporation is itself going to be subject to U.S. tax. Okay, and so that would defeat the whole purpose of, of, of this, basically. And, uh, you know, and not only would the non-U.S. corporation be subject to U.S. tax, it's subject to more U.S. tax than you are as an individual. So if you if you just do the business as a self-employed person um, and then you contribute it to a non-U.S. corporation, you're actually going to end up paying more tax. Okay, so so you want to make sure that you don't have employees or, or other dependent agents in the U.S. Now, it's perfectly, perfectly fine to have independent agents. In the U.S., you can have any number of independent agents. An independent agent is someone who has their own business going on, and and they and you are a client or a customer of them. Okay, here's one example: uh, Amazon. Okay, if you sell products on Amazon FBA, then yeah, Amazon is your agent um, because they they are handling your product, they're storing it, they're shipping it, they're handling payment processing, and you know all sorts of other things like that. Um, but you know, Amazon's got its own own uh, little tiny business going on, and you are one of their customers, and so so they are an independent agent of yours. That's that's perfectly fine. Another example is if you hire people on Upwork, like you hire graphic designers or writers, or, or and, and you hire them on a pure you know project by project sort of basis. That, that's probably fine, but, but you don't want to have an employee in the U.S. You don't want to have someone who you know shows up at eight o'clock with their lunch pail and then. You know, you tell them what to do until five o'clock and then they go home. Uh, you don't want to have a person like that in the United States because then then your non-U.S. corporation is subject to U.S. tax. So that's one of, you know, this rule is kind of interesting. I think of it as sort of an, uh, a U.S. expat cohesion rule. You know, so if uh, if you have the sort of business where you want to hire Americans uh, to help you with it. Well, that's perfectly fine, but just make sure that those Americans also live in Chiang Mai or, or Bangkok or, uh, whatever, or Ho Chi Minh city or something. Um, you know, uh, make sure that they don't live in Rochester or Albuquerque or, or, or whatever. And, and if they do make sure they're a freelancer and not an actual employee. Yeah. But again, the substance matters here. You know, the actual facts of what's going on matter, not just like what you call them. So, so you can't, you can't salvage the situation by just giving them a 1099 instead of a W2. You know, like if the if the if the actual nature of the relationship is, you know, they show up at eight with their lunch pail and do what you tell them to do. Well, then they're really they are a what's called a dependent agent. So, yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's one big limiting factor with this with this structure is it's got to be you, you don't want to have people in the U.S. who, who operate it. OK, that definitely makes sense. Uh, so the, where, where should people actually create this business? I, I always hear people talk about places like the British Virgin Islands, Belize, Nevis, St. Kitts, the, was it the, the Shelley's Islands? Like, or, or like, does it, yeah. like, what, what do you recommend? Yeah. So, so this is one of those issues that there is, there's way more written online about this than, than, than is really warranted. Um, it's just it's just not that important. Like honestly, uh, here's here's a decent way to decide. Write down every one of those names that you just heard Johnny say, and then throw a dart uh, and pick one. I mean that's that's a perfectly that's a perfectly fine way to to decide. So he, here's how I think about the analysis as a whole. Okay, so there are U.S. tax benefits to operating through a non-U.S. corporation. So we do, all we need is a non-U.S. corporation. Okay, so we have about 200 different options here. 
you know, that's about how many countries there are. Well, some of those countries would generally impose tax on the legal entity that you create there just because you created it in that country. Okay. So if, you, if you're a U.S. citizen and you're living in uh, Thailand and uh, you, you have a location independent business, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to pay German tax uh, by forming a German company to operate your business through. And it also doesn't make any sense to form an Australian company or uh, whatever. Uh, you know, even in the Estonian company, Estonia has a 20% tax on, on dividends. Uh, from the company. So, so it just doesn't make a lot of sense to pay tax, you know, to volunteer to pay tax somewhere else. Okay. So that's kind of obvious, but I, I want to kind of show the analysis. So, so that knocks out a whole heap of countries, right? Uh, and, and then we get down to basically like the, the countries on the list that Johnny mentioned, plus things like Hong Kong, Singapore. Now, Hong Kong and Singapore are both just really complicated jurisdictions, uh, to have a company. And, you know, you need a local company secretary. So you have to pay someone to be in, that you don't know, you know, to be an officer of your company, which I think is sort of weird. And then you have to submit audited financials every year, which costs a, a decent chunk of money, like two or three thousand uh, dollars, to get your financials audited properly, the Hong Kong way or the Singapore way. And you have to have a virtual office, and and then a Hong Kong company is technically subject to Hong Kong tax. You have to actually apply. Okay, there's a sixteen and a half percent tax, so that the company technically must pay. And so then you have to you know beg Hong Kong to allow you to not pay that tax. Um, so. So those countries are kind of just a little bit complicated. So I, I, I just, uh, you know, say, well, let's, you know, all we're trying to do is have a nice little non-U.S. company to pay to, a, to, you know, because we need the U.S. tax benefit. So let's, let's avoid all that complication. So then you're left with, yeah, basically the every, every, um, every jurisdiction that, that Johnny just mentioned, plus a bunch of other ones. Now, I live in Belize. Okay. Because in law school, I met a, uh, uh, a woman from Belize and married her. And now I live in Belize. And, and so, so that's why I like Belize. You know, if, if for some reason I'd made, I'd met an Anguillan, uh, woman in law school or a Barbadian, uh, Barbados, uh, person or whatever, uh, well then, yeah, I'd probably use, uh, those companies. But Belize, you know, these, com- these countries all, all compete for business basically. So like, you know, as soon as, uh, St. Kitts and, and Nevis, uh, come up with some new way of doing something with the company, well, then the Cayman Islands, changes their rules and does it too. And then Anguilla does it and then Panama does it and then Belize does it and then BBI does it. So, um, you know, all these countries are very easy. You, you can, uh, form a, con- a company there without going there. Um, you know, it's all, it's all pretty easy standard, um, uh, stuff as far as like not needing to do audited financials and, and, and all that kind of stuff like you do in Hong Kong. So, so yeah, so there's really, you know, my clients typically use Belize companies just because there's no reason to to prefer some jurisdiction over Belize, and, and I'm here, and so it's a uh, it's pretty easy to do. Okay, very cool answer. I, I know there's so many articles about you know where to you know where to, you know uh, where to base, and I think a lot of times people just like keeping people confused because they can produce more content. But I'm glad we, exactly. you know you you've kind of just exactly. squashed that. It's all a lot of it's sales. Yeah, if you're, if, I mean, if you're living in the Seychelles and you have a business that sells Seychelles companies, well, you're probably going to have some reason why the Seychelles is the best place. Like, I've got a Wyoming registered agent I really like to use. And, uh, yeah, they, she has some song and dance about why Wyoming is a business friendly state and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, sure, or whatever, you know, but, uh, you know, the people in Nevada have that same song and dance, you know, so, um, so, you know, Dan Norris wrote a really awesome book called The Seven Day Startup. And I think the subtitle is something like you, you don't learn until after you launch, you know? And so I, I come across so many people who just like, 
read all these websites and they get all they put maybe you know they might put charts together themselves about the difference between BVI and Belize and, and and stuff like that. And and they're just doing it as a way to feel like they're busy and to waste time. And but really what they need to be doing is just 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 launch your business already, you know. And so one thing Dan Norris recommends is you know in the seven day startup, I mean the idea is that to go from idea to actually having a business in seven days. And so one of those days is like legal entity uh, tax, you know, structuring sort of stuff like that, you know, so, so get this stuff done in one day. And so that's kind of one of the reasons I, uh, I put my online course together is just as a way to kind of say, okay, you know, why are you, why are you really worried about what, whether there's some juice to be had about uh, incorporating in Barbados versus, uh, versus the Marshall Islands or whatever? I mean, do you really think, I mean, what's going to, you think it's going to be just so much better? I mean, just, you know, so here's, here's how to do it. You know, in, in one day you can learn this stuff and you can, and you can, uh, you know, start getting it all set up. Okay. So I, I think that the biggest parts of it and is first, you guys got to get location dependent. You got, you guys got to, you know, if you want to take advantage of benefits like this and a ton of other ones that, you know, we don't have time to talk about, move out of the U.S., um, you know, become, you know, be location dependent. And if you already are, make sure you don't, you cut your ties to any state like California or New York or something. Uh, move out of there, get rid of that. And, then start your your non-US corporation. Go through you know all the the steps there. Uh, if you guys want, uh, it's kind of a step-by-step guide on how to do that. Uh, Stuart has a course. Uh, you can go to dropshiplab.com/tax, and that'll take you to his course. And it's great. It's lots of information in there. Personally, I, I think I watched it at 1.5 speed. Uh, and then I'd just be around the parts <laughs> where I needed to, you know, needed more information about and then watch it normally. Uh, so you can get through it, you know, pretty quickly. But I think the, the biggest benefit of your course is that it comes with a one hour phone call, right? Are you still doing that for, for everyone? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, this stuff, uh, this stuff is like 90%, uh, you know, the course will tell you everything that you need to know. But, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I like to make sure that everything is tailored to to each particular person. And so that's what that one hour phone call is about is let's, you know, let's make sure and look at your facts and see if anything's uh, different that we need to tailor things to. And then let's also make sure you understand everything and feel like you you have exactly what you need uh, to, to get it all set up. Now, one thing I want to make sure, Johnny, that we did was uh, we, we talked about earlier the tax consequences if you are a self-employed human and you make two hundred thousand dollars of net profit and, and and remember the answer is uh putting aside some rules that make it worse you know you're going to end up paying like fifty thousand dollars in uh in tax and that's the best case scenario well let's look at it now if you operate that same sort of business underneath a non-us corporation so remember we're not you know the activity here has got to be something like uh drop shipping affiliate marketing uh traffic arbitrage SaaS product and app, uh, selling apps things like that not not in the freelance product you have to live outside the U.S. and you uh, can't have employees in the U.S. So with all of that in place that we talked about before, then uh, so here's how it works for tax purposes. Now you are not a self-employed human anymore. Instead, you wear two hats. You are an employee of a non-U.S. corporation and you uh, are the owner of a non-U.S. corporation. So in your role as employee, uh, you can get uh, a salary from the company and that salary is can is just a nice clean uh, you know about $100,000 free of US federal income tax free of self-employment tax okay you're not self-employed you're an employee so there's no self-employment tax and then 
because you're just making the money as a salary, not as, uh, you know, money, you know, profits from a business, then that 30% rule we talked about goes away. And that scale back rule that we talked about also goes away. So it's a, it's a nice clean hundred thousand dollars out of the company without paying any, uh, us federal income tax or self-employment tax. And then the amount that you leave in the company, uh, you know, the net profits above your salary, that's only subject to tax uh, down the road uh, whenever you decide to cause the company to pay you a dividend. OK, so say you you know want to buy a house or something and, and, and all the money's in the company. Well, you, you'd cause the company to pay you a dividend. You pay tax at that point at, at ordinary income uh, rates. And then you would, um, you, you know, you'd, you'd be, able, be able to buy your house. So, uh, you know, if you have a year where your salary is less than $100,000, then your tax bill that year is going to be zero dollars. And you, and then you're deferring the U.S. tax on on the amount that you don't pay out as a salary, you know, the amount that you that you keep in. And so that allows you, you know, that allows you on that hundred thousand uh, dollars to invest a hundred thousand dollars, you know. Whereas if you were in California, for example, um, and you wanted to invest that hundred thousand dollars that you made, well, it's going to look a whole lot more like sixty thousand dollars or sixty five thousand uh, dollars because you're going to pay taxes that year. So so you get to invest on a pre tax basis. So that's a pretty uh, you know, if you, if you run, if you get a spreadsheet out and kind of look at, look at what, what your net worth is like 20 years, just on the fact that you got to invest, uh, that amount on a pre-tax basis. I mean, it's a pretty awesome, uh, benefit. So with, so when you say invest, you mean your company that, that you own that has a hundred grand can invest in like index funds and, and real estate and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. That's exactly, that's exactly, uh, what you can do. That's very, very cool. Yeah. If, if you earn passive, if the company earns passive income on, on those investments, then that passive income is subject to tax in the year that it's earned. Okay. It's called subpart F income. It's a, basically it's a special rule that says that subpart F income kind of sails straight through the company. You know, it's not, it's not held back by the, by the corporation structure like income from an active business is. So I like to invest in stuff that doesn't earn income. So like you mentioned ETFs. I mean, the awesome thing about exchange traded funds is that you get the investment uh, profile of a mutual fund because you can invest in different sectors or just like the stock market as a whole, but it has the tax consequences of a single stock. So you only have gain or loss whenever you decide to sell it. You know, if, if you invest in a mutual fund and, you know, um, generally that mutual fund will allocate up to you the, the gain and loss, the gain or loss that's inherent in the, the churn and the activity, you know, inside the fund. So, so yeah, so, um, so basically that's, that's the whole goal here is you, you turn off the negative rules that hurt the foreign earning income exclusion. You turn off the self-employment tax and you, uh, and, and you get to invest. Now, sometimes people say, well, how much should I be making before I do this structure? And if you think of it from that perspective, well, just saving the self-employment tax is a, is a huge benefit, you know? So, um, you know, like that's, you know, even if you're only making like $10,000 a year, self-employment tax is going to be 1500 bucks. And so, you know, you could use that $1,500 uh, in, in much better ways uh, to actually get your legal structure set up so that you're in a position, uh, uh, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, whenever you have a business, you don't want to kind of hope that you don't make money, right? I mean, you want to get your legal structure in place so that um, whenever the traffic really hits and things start working, um, you're all set up to go. And kind of the estimated cost to set all this up from kind of what I remember, uh, it was, it was less than a thousand dollars to actually set up the company and, and, and get it, every, every, pretty, pretty much everything that you need, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good, I think that's a good, uh, you know, round number for the, for the amount to spend. And, you know, the whole idea of my course is to get you to the point where you understand exactly how all this stuff works. And then you understand, uh, exactly who to contact, uh, to set the structure up. And then, uh, it has the actual legal documents that you need, uh, as part of the structure. And then it comes with a call uh, with me, like you mentioned, Johnny, so that we can go over everything and make sure you understand. So, uh, you know, it's, it's really like a quick start guide to, to get you going in, in, in the best way without having to, to spend a whole bunch of money to hire someone else to do it for you. Now, if you do want to hire someone else to do it for you, well, I do that as well, obviously. So I can, uh, uh, I, I can do that as well. But the, but the course, you know, really is, you know, it really does show you exactly how to do it if, 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 you're, if you're of a mind to... Uh, spend a little time yourself to, to take care of it. Yeah. And I've been through the course. I can vouch for that. I mean, I think there's enough information even in this interview alone where if you guys went back and listened to this two or three times, you, you can, you could just set it up yourself. But, you know, I would recommend if you guys are serious about setting up your, you know, your international business and, and, and doing this, you, should, you guys should do it correctly. Uh, and I think, just that that hour phone call with you would be worth it. Uh, but first, you know, obviously go through the course, and then that way you can get all the basics of it. You can see how everything's set up, and then ask all the questions you want over that call and set it up that way. I I, I don't think anyone you know needs to pay for the extra service to to, ha- to have you know to have you or anyone else do it for them. Uh, I think the the course itself is already. You know, it is already out there. Uh, I do, I do want to have one suggestion for you, Stuart, because I was still a little bit confused in some of the, the forms when I was filling it out. So my suggestion to you would be to include a sample kind of pre-filled out in pre-filled out form, um, of whenever you send over paperwork. And that way someone can kind of see, you know, which boxes they should be checking and, and what they should be writing, uh, uh, in each section. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I realized that was kind of a uh, lacking in the original course, so I've added a an example of an IRS form W eight B E and E, uh, which is a form that you have to fill out whenever you do like an Amazon tax interview and and, and things like that. So that you know, just like you said, Johnny, you'll you'll know exactly which uh, which boxes to check. Yeah, and, and you were super cool about emailing me back. Uh, I just felt like I was I was kind of wasting your time every time I, you know, was like, okay, in this line, like which box do I check? Uh, but overall, I, I you know I'm excited to to have an international company now in Belize, um, and I'm excited you know to be able to to make more money and invest more money and do it legally. So thank you so much for not only coming on the show but also creating this course. Yeah, well, thank you, Johnny. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. No problem. So if you guys want to check out uh, Stuart's course, you go to dropshiplab.com slash tax uh, or go to the show notes and there'll be a link there for you uh, to join in. And I'm excited uh, to kind of hear from you guys how much money you guys save uh, next year. Uh, and even if you don't go through the whole process today, just get it, get it started. I, I think that's the, the number one thing I, I would recommend to everyone. Uh, obviously, if you guys are paid even $5,000 in income tax last year, you can already double your ROI. Um, you know, let's say you spend 800 bucks on the course and then another thousand dollars setting it all up. Uh, you know, it's even at that point, you would have had a, you know, 200% ROI. So if you're spending t- 10 grand or more in income tax and you are either living abroad already or you're planning on living abroad and being location dependent, you should, you should definitely look into setting up this, this structure. So thanks again to Stuart for coming on the show. Honestly, I still don't understand 
anything that we just talked about. So I might have to be listening to the show a couple of times just to get it and maybe even go through his course again. Uh, but it's, it, it was awesome having this much just amazing information on, on this episode. You know, definitely this is one of those ones to share with anyone who you know is location dependent, who hates paying taxes. Just probably everybody. Uh, sorry to the people who are non-American. Uh, Actually, no. Good for you guys if you're non-American because as he mentioned in the show, most of you guys uh, and gals that are non-U.S. citizens can ha- you know have your own tax benefits and, and breaks. Uh, so find out what they are for your country. I know for almost every country that you know I've heard of, um, maybe even including Canada and the U.K., if you're living out of the, that country for even six months, you don't have to pay income tax for that year. Uh, I know there's a lot of rules to that. So do your own research, but, but take a look because I, I think it's super interesting. I also want to thank our sponsor, Tripstreak, for taking care of this podcast. And if you guys want to book a flight to Belize, to, to Southeast Asia, to Chiang Mai, uh, or you know to wherever you are in the world, check out tripstreak.com slash travel like a boss. And thanks so much for everyone who left these amazing five-star reviews of the podcast. Uh, this week, uh, I want to thank... NYC Allen, he says, best podcast on iTunes, five stars. Johnny, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I want to thank you and your guests for sharing their online success stories, inspiring us to become digital entrepreneurs. Props to you for offering a ton of knowledge and being so resourceful to us listeners. Keep doing what you uh, do, and I hope to be on your podcast someday. And Alan, I would hope for you to be on here too. I love it when past listeners become a future guest. So the best thing you guys can do is become location-dependent, Build a business, become successful, and hopefully we will meet up somewhere in the, wor- somewhere in the world. Uh, if you guys haven't joined the Facebook group yet, it is the Travel Like a Boss Army. And there is where I announce uh, all the meetups we're having. So make sure you subscribe to the email list as well as hop on to the group. And hopefully I'll see you guys somewhere, somewhere around the world. And hopefully we can you know, figure out how to legally not have to pay as much tax. We have more money to do cool things. See you guys all next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.